0: I'm Kim Raycon, Marketing Associate for Harper Academic, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academic's podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind the scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers about their books. academic calling peggy orenstein i'm kim raycon marketing associate at harper academic and recently i chatted with peggy orenstein about her new york times bestseller girls and sex which was published in march in her review for vogue rebecca traister says girls and sex offers quote a nuanced read for anyone who remembers being a young woman and anyone who is raising the next generation of girls and boys for whom we hope the future holds sexual satisfaction not pain or disappointment. Drawing on in-depth interviews with over 70 self-selected young women who were either in college or were college bound, as well as a wide range of psychologists, academics, and experts, Girls and Sex talks about the hidden truths, hard lessons, and important possibilities of girls' sex lives in the modern world. Orenstein's call to action is best expressed in the book's closing lines. We've raised a generation of girls to have a voice, to expect egalitarian treatment in the home, in the classroom, in the workplace. Now it's time to demand that intimate justice in their personal lives as well. Before we begin, a content warning. During this episode, Peggy and I have frank discussions about sex, sexual coercion, and sexual assault, so the contents of this podcast may be difficult for some of our listeners. Girls and Sex is forthcoming in paperback in March 2017 from Harper Paperbacks. Many thanks to Peggy for her time and excellent frank conversation for this episode. Hello? Hi, Peggy. Yeah. Hi, Peggy. It's Kim from HarperCollins. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks. The first question that I'll start with is about the method behind girls and sex and what uh, what the process of interviewing was like for you Mm. so from your position as the interviewer who ultimately you know then then turn these interviews into into girls and sex what was the most difficult response or series of responses that that a girl gave you um, that you had to listen to but also also react to in that in that conversational moment you know, there there were so many, and I think it, the obvious
1: thing is that girls would disclose um, experiences of assault, and, and that was always hard to hear. But, you know, what was equally difficult in a lot of ways um, was just the experience of kind of, you know, garden-variety coercion that girls accepted as normal or as painful, but something that they sort of inevitably would have to endure um, that threaded through so many of the interviews, so many of the interviews, whether it was talking about, you know, um, performing oral sex because guys sort of verbally or physically coerced them into it or um, other, you know, other sorts of things. It was was really, I would often have to go back to my hotel room if I was on the road and kind of lay on my bed and let that all kind of process through. Um, it it, could, I, it was it was sometimes very hard.
0: Yeah, because the the two that's that stand out for me after I got done reading Girls and Sex, one was the story of of Megan and Tyler. Um, mm-hmm. And I should note that all of the names that you used were were changed to predict yeah. people's identity. Um, but Megan and Tyler, uh, Megan and Tyler's story and how Megan. Felt like she had to be the one that apologized. She never got yeah. an apology from him, um, but she felt like she had to apologize to Tyler for ruining his life after after she um, mm-hmm. pressed charges and, and he had to had to take some time out from school. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean,
1: what, the the thing about that story, there were a couple things that were really interesting to me. Um, one was that Megan was somebody who was really kind of into the hookup culture, although she kind of talked in contradictory ways about it, where she would say, you know, on one hand, I don't care what anybody thinks, and this is what I want to do, and on the other hand, nobody wants to date the slutty girl, you know, so she was sort of always bouncing back and forth, but she had, um, through the course of her uh, time at school, um, had been raped, and um, and it was interesting, you know, she, she, after, she, stayed, she kept trying to make it okay during the course of the night. So she she stayed, among other things. And then he drove her back home in the morning, like it was the morning after a normal encounter, and she said, Thanks, I had a great time. Um and she and then God she said, I have no idea why I said that. It was like it was an automatic and then she went into her room and broke down. And that was really interesting. And then it was unusual in that she pressed charges and prevailed. Mhm. Yeah that was really unusual and that was that was really not so much because the case itself was different than a lot of other girls or you know more clear-cut or easily easier argued or anything like that it was because his frat brothers turned on him and that is very unusual and happened because he had had was already um in trouble for um picking fights and uh so they were not but I think that they wanted him out, too. So they were willing to kind of step forward in a way that typically does not happen. And I think that that was what really got him suspended. And, I, and she didn't think he was going to come back. But, but, yeah, afterwards it was interesting that she found herself feeling like she had to apologize to him because she was ruining his life. And that was a, a, a really, you know, and she was really kind of struggling with all that.
0: Yeah, and the, the other moment that was difficult for me to, to process is, is also um, in that same chapter on a hookup culture, and it, and it also is about rape. It's when you talk with Mariah, and she, she says, no one here knows what rape is. Mm-hmm. Would I know if I was raped? Maybe if it was a stranger in a dark alley, yeah, but otherwise, I'm not so sure, And and the thing that struck me about her comment is, is one, I guess, that there is sort of the prevailing idea that there is such a narrow definition of, of rape in her mind, and presumably in the minds of a lot of people that she knows, and girls that she's friends with. But also that it's a definition that relies on the, the law and order way that we see rape on, you know, pick pick any law and order TV show version, that's sort of the only thing that that counts, that's the only thing that it can be, as if acquaintance rape um, is not something that, that she considered it's something that, you know she would expect, maybe in terms of how she's defining it
1: Yeah, and I, you know I, uh, that's something that I hope is changing fast, yeah um, you know she but it wasn't that long ago i mean she that was mm, end of maybe the early 2015. That's wow that. so i'm not that no no i'm sorry 2014. um so so it wasn't like this was a long time ago that she spoke to me really? um but she was interesting too because you know, she was in a sorority, mm-hmm. and she said, um, you know, a lot of my friends at these more progressive, or these supposedly progressive schools, you know, like Oberlin and Columbia and wherever, Barnard, what, you know, whatever, whatever she listed, those were a couple of them. I went to Oberlin, so that stuck in my mind, mm-hmm. um, will say, you know, what are you doing in this patriarchal, oppressive institution? And she said, you know, I'm not stupid. If that was all it was, and if if it was just going to parties, getting drunk and getting assaulted, I wouldn't be doing this, but I think that sororities have this potential to be these feminist spaces, and I've made the best friends I've ever made in my life, and you know, I mean, she had a lot that she wanted to say about what, you know, about not demonizing the Greek system while also saying, at the same time, then we walk into the parties and it all falls apart. Yeah. And so that, I think, was a really interesting observation because it's really easy, I think, for those of us who, I mean, l- l- you know, like I said, I went to Oberlin, we, don't, we didn't have a Greek system, mm-hmm. and it, it's a complete, you know, I, I don't even, it, it was just a complete foreign thing to me. And so it's easy, I think, for people like that or like me to just kind of go, well, those you know, those people are all crazy or, or something like that. But to have somebody who can really analyze what works, what is empowering, and, and why it flips like that, and, and what you make of it and what the potential is perhaps in that system to um, promote, to be at the vanguard of promoting change.
0: Yeah, and it also speaks to the question of, of what, to some extent anyway, what young women are willing to accept as normalized in, yeah. in their relationships. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the coercion thing, and I you know
1: I, the thing is that in our in the w- way that young people do or really don't learn about sex in our culture, um, coercion is baked into the script in a very real way. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know the baseball metaphor where the, I, I, there's there's a scene at the, towards the end of the book when I'm in a sex education class, and um, one of the boys in the class raises his hand and says, "You know, that baseball metaphor. I never thought about it before, but in baseball, there's winners and there's losers. So who's the loser supposed to be in sex? And that's, uh, you know, that that's the classic metaphors that boys push. That boys are supposed to see girls' limits as a challenge to overcome.
0: Yeah, and, and you also of, offer an alternative analogy in thinking about coercion with your with your glass of water analogy. <laughs> yeah, that's one of them. Yeah, I, I feel like I should get a patent on that or yeah, something. Yeah, I think you should. I, I really I really like that. So first, first can you, if, if somebody's not familiar with that analogy or doesn't <laughs> quite remember where it is, can you recap what the glass of water analogy is? So it was It was in talking about
1: um, oral sex with girls, and one of the things that, you know, one of the things that has changed is that oral sex is considered less intimate than intercourse among young people, and it, at least if it goes female to male, if males are on the receiving end. And girls would say, you know, oh, it's no big deal again if males are on the receiving end. And it was a way to, you know, they would talk about it as a way to feel desire, they would talk about it as a way to boost social status, and they would talk about it as a way to get out of an uncomfortable situation. You know, if if a guy was trying to, uh, you know, push for sex, and this would be the compromise, you know? And and, uh, so I started, I heard so many stories of one-sided, girls performing one-sided oral sex, that I started saying, look, what if every time you were alone with a guy, he told you to get a glass of water for him from the kitchen, and he never, got you a glass of water, or or if he did, it was like, you know, (sighs) yeah, yeah, (laughs) you know, like totally begrudging. You would never stand for it. These were really bright girls. These were strong girls. These were girls who were outspoken in other realms, Um, and and they wouldn't have, But, but what was sort of interesting, I think, was that it wasn't just that boys weren't willing. It was also related to girls not wanting them to because of their own internalized shame around their genitals. And the ways that we teach girls in and um, pop culture and um, and in silence around um, girls' genitals teaches them that, you know, they're ugly, stinky, you know, unacceptable, taste bad, whatever. So they're reluctant as well.
0: Yeah. And one of the reasons why I love that glass of water analogy so much is that it, to me, it raises a really interesting question. In some parts about you know obviously deservingness and reciprocity, which are two things that I'm sure we'll we'll talk a bit about uh, in a minute. but also the idea of kind of a, re, a revulsion towards domesticity, right? Like there's this, there's this willingness to put up with, sure, okay, let's have oral sex because this is a compromise or however it is that they process it. Uh But there is this really seemingly stringent, absolutely, I am not the person who is going to fetch you things like glasses of water.
1: Right, right.
0: And I I think that we have gotten as, you know,
1: adult women have been... I mean, you see it in the the last... um, Election cycle. I guess when when you know those guys were yelling, chanting, "Iron my shirts" or Mm -hmm. "Make me a sandwich" or whatever it was, um, and Hillary Clinton, that there is an acknowledgement in the mainstream culture, and certainly among adult women, and certainly among the kind of adult women who are the mothers of these girls, that we are not domestic servants, yeah, and that you you know that you should expect. And demand equality in the home life, um, or, or at least that's the ideal, you know, in the home life, in the classroom, in the workplace. But we haven't talked about um, this—the equality in the personal life. And, and in the book, I, I talk about um, my favorite phrase ever, that was coined by Sarah McLawhorn, who's a psychologist at University of Michigan, um, is intimate justice. Mm-hmm. And the, you know that's, that, that's very much that notion that sex has political as well as personal implications, just like who does the dishes, or or who vacuums the rug, or who gets the water. Um, And that we need to, In that it raises similar issues around inequality, around economic disparity, violence, physical and mental health. And we have to ask, you know, who gets to engage in an experience? Who gets to enjoy it? Who's the primary beneficiary? And how does each partner to find good enough, and when I talk um, about the book, you know, to to like parent-age people, I always say those are not easy questions for us as adult women, you know, they can be traumatic, but when I think about girls, I just kept coming back to this notion that their early sexual experiences should not be something they have to get over.
0: Yeah, nor should they be things that they need to apologize for either, No. yeah. Why do you think there is such a seemingly slippery slope when it comes to consent? Well, again, I think that there's this notion that coercion has been normalized. Mm -hmm. It's not
1: a notion. Coercion has been normalized. And so when we... I mean, for one thing, who who has talked to these young people ever? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. these issues, you know? Yeah. I mean, we are just starting to have the, you know, the very first conversations about how do we teach kids about consent? What does that mean? I mean, my God, it's 2016. You know, I mean, that's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, so nobody has talked to them about this. And so there's that whole piece. There's the normalization of coercion. And the other piece, I think, has to do with how we see um, or how we teach girls about, or don't teach girls about women's roles and women's pleasure in sexuality,
0: mm-hmm. which kind of connects to the idea of objectification, right? And how we see women in popular culture, um, in society, certainly on Instagram, right? You talk a lot about mm-hmm. the, the the rise of the selfie culture, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's it's a visual culture and it's a culture that tells girls that how they look is more important than who they are, Um, and not only that, but how they look is more important than how their body looks is more important than how their body feels, and that's kind of the essence of the idea of hot, um, which is you know what everybody's going for in their selfies or whatever that the the, you know it's this very narrow idea of attractive and even a narrow idea of sexy um, as being kind of um, commercialized and uh, can I curse on your podcast? Go right ahead. Yeah. So it's basically fuckable, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. And so I, I never know if that's okay or not. You know. Go ahead. Um. So, <laughs> and, and, and it's it's all about um being looked at, and it's not. So when I talk about sort of the issues of dress and culture and all this stuff, if you know, there's this constant argument now about girls in clothing and, you know, of course, girls' clothing doesn't mean, you know, it's is irrelevant what they're wearing in terms of boys' behavior towards them and sexual misconduct and all of that. Um, but they're sold self-objectification as a form of empowerment. And even if you sort of buy into that, it seems to me that the confidence was coming off of the clothes. so there was a sort of like yeah you know i'm liberated and i can wear these skimpy outfits but that didn't connect to feeling um joyful or feeling um a right to pleasure in their bodies and and what i kept coming bumping up against in writing this book was this idea that young women felt free and entitled to engage in sexual behavior, but not necessarily to enjoy it.
0: Right. Right. And part of that objectification culture comes from sort of two titanic names of Beyonce and Kim Kardashian. Dum, 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 dum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and, and in different ways, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I, I think there's so much of what Beyonce is trying to do that is so positive uh, and progressive. And at the same time, you know, as one girl said to me, could she say what she says if she didn't look the way she looked? Right, which is a, which is a totally valid question, yeah. Yeah, and what does that mean about my ability then, you know, speaking as the girl, yeah. not as me, um, to say what I have to say and be heard? And, and that has real-world implications, not only in sexuality, but, you know, in, in girls' leadership, that there's a, a clear, in multiple cam- in studies of, across multiple campuses, a clear feeling on the, on the part of girls that it's not good enough to be qualified um, for a position of power and leadership, but that you have to also be, uh, look a certain way in order to um, be out there. And that that certain way, you know, ends up being hot. So, so, so looking, you know, your your empowered um, presentation has to do again with as, as much with how you look as with your qualification or who you are. So that's the the Beyonce side. The Kim Kardashian side is, you know, there was that. I, I think that when she put out that um, uh, Instagram photo on. International Women's Day, mm-hmm. last year. I think that was sort of the perfect example, she was, it was like a nude selfie and said, when you don't know what to wear, LOL, or something like that, um, happy International Women's Day, and there was this big debate about whether Kim was a feminist or Kim was a slut, and like, those are the only two options. Right. Um, yeah. Right, and and what I came, you know, what what I think... important to understand with kim and and lisa wade at occidental college really talks about this beautifully um is what she has done is make what's called a patriarchal bargain Mm -hmm. and that is um and and we all make patriarchal bargains you you can't live in this world without them but it's but hers is bigger and more brilliant than (laughs) others um which is that that you is taking the taking on Um, the roles and roles that typically disadvantage women in order to get the power that you can out of them Mm -hmm. without actually changing anything (laughs) in the culture at large. So Kim has really just made an absolutely brilliant and lucrative patriarchal bargain. Um, She is not a feminist icon. You know, I can't speak to anything else about her. She's just, you know, another one of these figures who's managed to take the things that typically are going to, you know, oppress women and hurt women and make them work. And that is a difficult, I think, a a complicated model for young women because when they are constantly putting up selfies and trying to figure out how to, you know, capitulate, embrace, co-opt, mock, subvert, you know, the whole male gaze thing... Mm -hmm. Um, that looks pretty good, but, but it's not going to be um, as ultimately, you know, if it's a positive experience for Kim, I can't say, but it's, it, 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 it has as much... Risk as it does pay potential payoff.
0: Yeah, in some ways it's it's a it's a brilliant strategy, right? To to use to use what you have in in that way doesn't change anything for women, and it only works for a very
1: select few who can you know make it work either because of their physical attributes or their canny business sense or their willingness to exploit themselves endlessly. Um, And you know, for for others, it's it's a disaster.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean, I asked this next question sort of at, at the risk of, of offending Kanye West and getting into a great, the next great Twitter war with Kanye West. But oh God. <laughs> I'll take the heat. It'll be my, it'll be my problem. If we can turn her name into a phrase, I mean, she has a phrase and a brand. Do you think that that Kim Kardashian has become a quote unquote bad word? Well, I guess it would depend on who you're talking to. Hmm. You know, I mean, I
1: think a lot of young women, a lot of girls really admire her and feel an identification with her because it, what's, what's, what I think is ironic is that everybody always says she's so real and so authentic, though every single thing she does is scripted and planned and, yeah. you know, photoshopped. And, um, but I, I think that that identification is about feeling that no matter what you do, you're going to be judged by your physical self that you, that, you know, I, I think even, you know, when we talk about, um, in my family right now, there's a lot of dress code issues. Okay. Because I have a young teenager. Mm-hmm. And, and whenever I go out and speak, there's, there's parents who, you know, women who were like, you know, radical feminists back in the day. And they'll say, these girls today, they dress like sluts, you know? And I'll say, wait, 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 let's dial that back a second. And you've got a whole pop culture, a whole industry, a whole visual culture telling them that this is empowering. So we're going around telling girls the whole time that they're growing up, like in my previous book, you know, pretty, pretty princess, you know, go get your four-year-old makeover, go get your, you know, eight-year-old manicure, and then all of a sudden, boom, they hit puberty and they develop a woman's body and they do the exact same thing, and we call them sluts. And it's unconscionable. And it's um, and and it's unfair. They're just doing what we taught them to do, and they're doing what that what you know the visual culture demands of them. So rather than ta- you know than demonizing individual girls, I think it's really important to help our to educate kids, boys and girls, about um, media messages, to educate them about the impact of self objectification on young women, um, cognitively and sexually and um, emotionally. And to critique the industries, the fashion industry, the advertising industry, the marketing industry, that are promoting ideas that aren't healthy for girls and in their, in their body image and their sexuality and their um, sense of self.
0: Yeah, and and that that stigma of a culture based on appearance and always being reacted and responded to based on appearance isn't that's not something that goes away for women as they age, right? No. Because, yeah. <laughs> not like
1: ever. You yeah. know, I was kind of looking forward to being able to let it all go and <laughs> go. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> Bring on those hot fun Sundays. Yeah, know? yeah. But now you know, as an older woman, um, you know, not like old old, but getting older woman. Uh, I, I, it because we were just talking about this with friends that, um, now it's a state, like a political statement if you don't do anything to your faith. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not, you know, I don't want to have to make a political statement, but I, it, I mean, it's, it's a very complicated, it's a very complicated thing that we're going through now. I think as, as you get to be middle aged, um, in a way that, was just you know what it was when you when, you know even twenty thirty years ago.
0: Yeah, and you brought up Sarah McClellan's excellent excellent phrase, intimate justice. In that idea, she talks a lot, and as, as do you in Girls in Sex, talk a lot about the idea of deservingness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do we get girls to think about their own deservingness? Because it seems like there's there's this sort of gap that they, they don't think that they deserve to experience pleasure in sex or um, that they deserve to have a partner who is reciprocal right. in in Fulfilling her own needs and desires. So, how, how do we kind of get that in their brains, do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I want, I want to answer that a couple of ways. One, first of all, yes, you know, when, when she did research on um, sexual satisfaction, which people think when you say sexual satisfaction that everybody knows what you mean, but it's really a gendered idea. And young women are more likely to measure their satisfaction by their partner's pleasure. hmm. And young men are more likely to measure their satisfaction, you know, by their own orgasm. Um, Not surprisingly. Yeah. So girls will say, "I'm satisfied if he's satisfied," and they also talk about bad sex differently. And in the largest survey of American sexual behavior that was conducted, young women, um, 30% of young women report pain in their last sexual encounter, and uh, they also use words like humiliating, depressing, degrading, and the men never use that language in the, in the research. So when young women report equal or greater sexual satisfaction levels to men, which they do in the research, it's deceptive because, you know, they, they, um, if they go into an encounter thinking, hoping it won't hurt, wanting to feel close to their partner and expecting him to have an orgasm, you know, we're talking about heterosexual encounters still here, mm-hmm. um, then they will be satisfied if those conditions are met. But that's a really different set of criteria than the men are going in with um, as their measure of satisfaction. So, so to recognize that we think of these things differently is important. And I think one way to change that um, is to talk about it from the get-go. And just, I mean, we not uh, you know, I talk about in the book that I feel like we perform the uh, what I call a kind of psychological clitoridectomy mm-hmm. on girls. And what I mean by that is from the time they're born, parents of baby boys have more of a tendency to name all their body parts. Like they'll at least say, here's your pee-pee or something like that. Whereas parents of girls go from navel to knees and they leave that whole, you know, situation in the middle unnamed. Mm -hmm. And then, which, you know, what better way to make something unspeakable, right, than not to name it? Yeah. And then they go into puberty ed, and they learn that boys have erections and ejaculations, and girls have periods and unwanted pregnancy. Not the same. And that girls, you know, you see that internal diagram that looks like a steer head Mm -hmm. of the women's reproductive system. And it grays out between the legs. So we we don't say vulva. We never say clitoris. Fewer than half of girls 14 to 17 have ever masturbated. I mean, we would never allow that level of ignorance about any other body part, like their elbow, for instance. (laughs) You know? And and then they go into partnered encounters, and we somehow expect that they're going to be able to have a voice, Mm -hmm. that they're going to be able to think sex is about them, that they're going to be able to express their needs and desires and limits. It's completely unrealistic. So I think, you know, one important shift is that if we... I mean, I even, like, I just saw... Did you ever have the American Girl Care and Keeping of You books when you were, when you were a teenager?
0: Uh, no, so I, you know, I, that, I'm a little bit too old for that. Oh, but. Okay. <laughs> but you know those you know, the, they, you know what those books are, though. They're the most yeah, yeah, popular yeah. puberty books for yeah. girls. And the second
1: one has a diagram of the external genitalia, mm-hmm. and it labels, you know, the labia, the vulva, this and that. It doesn't even acknowledge that the clitoris exists. Mm. So, how is a girl supposed to? Where? What is she supposed to think about her pleasure? How is she supposed to conceptualize that? Unless she either, you know, kind of finds it accidentally, or happens to have a boyfriend who's um, who cares, or who's interested, or who's
0: exploratory, or but it's not a given, right? Right, yeah, because I was even thinking, and I mean, when I was when I was growing up, we had this vi- There was this video that we watched uh, as a ch- as a child of the '80s. There was this video that we watched, and there was a woman who made pancakes. Like her daughter had a sleepover, and there was a woman who made pancakes, and she made the pancakes in the shape of the female reproductive system. And I can't, I. But that's the like. That's the only thing that I remember from this from this video that I saw when I was like in fifth grade that's or sixth hysterical. grade. So I, I don't know. Maybe it's on. Uh, maybe somebody put it on YouTube. I'll have to see if I can find it. But that's the that's. That's what I remember of of my first... yeah, then did eat them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. then it was like, well, here's breakfast, you know, and it's like, so, I mean, thinking about it now, it's like this bizarre... That's very bizarre. Yeah, but that's, but that's what, that's what I remember. That was sort of my, what I remember anyways, being my first introduction to, to learning about it.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, so that's what we learn, right? There's, there's a fear, there's almost a sense like, if we don't tell girls sex will feel good to them they won't find out, you know, and and they don't very easily, but, but, and if they don't find out, they won't do anything. But that's not what happens, and instead, what we, this is, you know, what we know from research is the more girls know about their bodies, the more they understand and feel in control and feel joy in their bodies, the higher their standards, and then they are, you know, they are more likely to be, you know, choosy and care, and 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 not accept a partner's, you in know, a, in a indifference or or cruelty in the same way. Not feel they start to feel deserving, deservingness.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now let's change gears a bit. There's no. I, I was trying to figure out. There's no natural way for me to make this transition, but given current rhetoric that's going on right now in the in the political arena, is of course chock full of. Of discussions of coercion and examples of coercion and assault. What concerns you most about what's happening in terms of the presidential debates um, and the Republican? That <laughs> yeah, we're all going to die.
1: Uh, <laughs> we're going to elect somebody who's unstable and going to blow us all up. That's what it concerns me right now. Um, oh, oh, you mean about this? Uh,
0: yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can feel free to answer the question any way you choose. Oh my God!
1: Um, well, you know, I I wrote about this in the in the Times a few weeks ago, and mm-hmm. I'm now working. Um, I'm moving towards doing a, a book on boys, mm-hmm. and we keep having. I mean, you can you can focus on on the Trump tapes, and, and not and they're obviously an important indicator, but these things keep bubbling up you know, whether it's Bill Cosby or William Kennedy Smith in the 80s mm-hmm. or Steubenville or um, Brock Turner or, you know, it's the same story over and over and over and over again. And I think there's a way that we, and, and maybe this is particularly true of parents of boys more than parents of girls, um, that they can be the same people, uh, that we make this, that behavior, I mean, and it is, you know, monstrous. And we don't connect the dots all the way back to our silence around um, sexuality, reciprocity, ethics, responsibility, um, joy, pleasure. We don't have, not having those conversations with our girls and our boys. Mm-hmm. And with allowing this idea of coercion to be normal. So that, again, you know, like I said, there's the baseball metaphor. There's, I was just, um, a few, like a couple months ago, Fox TV did a live version of Grease, yeah. the musical, and there's that song, Summer Lovin'. Yeah, that song has always creeped me out. Well, as it should. I mean, I had never really noticed that I'm not a big fan of that movie or play. And right. I, but I was listening, I just happened to have it on because I, I was out of town, I was in a hotel room, and you, there's a, it, 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 the the um, words are, you know, well, uh, well, uh, and the girls go, tell me more, tell me more. Was it love at first sight? And the boys saying, Tell me more, tell me more. Did she put up a fight? Yeah. And nobody challenged. I mean, that's like normal. Yeah. Like, I don't know. You said you were a child of the 80s. I don't know if you remember that old Meatloaf song, Paradise by the Dashboard like Yep, yep.
0: Right? I yep. mean, that,
1: they actually put in the narrative, the into the song um a, a clip from an actual baseball game yeah where, where the guy's doing the announcing and he's going oh holy cow he's gonna steal a third and i'm going like what that is not a reciprocal sexual relationship yeah there. yeah so and, and i think it's just the way we think about it and so that's what concerns me is that this will all go away um, God willing, Trump will not be elected, and we will forget about it until the next high-profile
0: horror. Yeah, which is which is really sad. Really? Which will happen? Yeah, yeah. Because as much as as much as we can sort of maybe count on it going away and nothing nothing ever happening, we can also count on it coming back. Right. Something exactly. else. there's always going to be another story. Exactly. Yeah. And then we will wring our hands
1: again, and we will talk about this terrible person, and we will continue, and we will maybe, I mean, that's the thing. I, I do think that people are, that it does give people the opportunity and, and the message that they need to talk to their children, particularly boys, about consent. Mm-hmm. But we, we aren't talking about what happens after yes. Yeah. And that's just as important to talk about, and it's, just, and it's an unnatural thing for American parents to discuss
0: yeah because as as you as you talk about in girls and sex, the, the Dutch do a really, really interesting job of it they do, and they were very similar to us before the sexual revolution, and
1: then um, when the sexual revolution happened after you know the pill uh, came into um, circulation and that sort of thing. Uh, they saw the, the inevitability and the, you know, acceptability of teenagers experimenting sexually within limits, and they decided to just go all in on sex education and and, and talking to kids. And so there was a, a study that was particularly illuminating that I looked at that was comparing 300 girls from that were randomly chosen from two very similar. Um universities, one in America and one in Holland. And the Dutch girls, and the Dutch girls had every, reported everything that we say we want. They had less pregnancy, less disease, less regret, less likely to be drunk. um and they were more uh, co- communicated with their partners better. They knew their partners really well. they prepared for their encounters responsibly. They enjoyed themselves, you know all all of these things that we say we want. And don't have, you Mm -hmm. know, compared to them. And the difference was that the Dutch girls said that their doctors, teachers, and parents all talk to them candidly from an early age about sex, pleasure, and the importance of mutual trust. And more to the point, the American parents weren't necessarily less comfortable talking about sex, but we tend to frame those discussions with our kids entirely in terms of risk and danger and the Dutch frame it in terms of talking about responsibility and joy. Mm. And as a parent, that really got me because I absolutely am positive that had I not looked into that research, that's exactly what I would have done. I yeah. would have talked about contraception, disease protection, I'm modern, so I would have talked about consent, and I would have thought, well done.
0: Yeah, it's, it, it's a huge narrative difference, and it's, it's amazing to, to think that just such a slight, relatively slight change, would make a world of difference to not just sort of the comfort level with talking about it, because that's it's a difficult conversation for both parents and, and children to have, but also such a, such a necessary one. You know, I'll tell you something, though. It, it seems uncomfortable
1: and awkward, but that's because we don't have it and because we don't know how, because nobody had it with us. But You know, I cheated. I opened the door with my child by writing a book. Yeah. And she, you know, when I don't have childcare or whatever, she has to tag along with me to interviews or talks or whatever. And so she has to hear me talking about this all the time. And that has opened a lot of doors and conversation between us. Mm. Um, And it's made, I think, I I don't know what it would have been like for me had I not, I mean, maybe I'd be a different person if I didn't write this book, but um, it has really helped me, and we're, and we're still very early in the game, she's just 13, but for instance with the dress code issues,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, I think it's really changed, I think it's really changed our conversation about it, and not only in that she sees me as an advocate and and a sounding board, um, but, you know, what I'll, what I'll say there, I mean, sometimes, you know, she wears things that I think, mm-mm, uh, I'm not so sure about that, you know, and, and we'll we'll talk about it i and i never put it on her though you know and in terms of like you know you can't wear that out of the house or or something like that right but when we do talk about it whether it's about her about her friends i I sort of say look i can't tell you what the right answer is to this dilemma because every woman has to ultimately figure it out for herself Yeah. because it's not it's not okay right now out there it's contradictory you're going to get you know, you're going to get harassed no matter what you wear um, and that is the truth and you know, you have to make decisions about how you, you, know, how you feel, what it means to you, what you know about um, self justification what you know about your peer group, all these kinds of things. And I, I can't tell you, but I can tell you that we can talk about it and, and we can look, you know, we can question it and discuss it
0: together. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's great. A plus parenting to you. Well, I don't think I could have done that before, though. And that's yeah. what I mean. I really think that that when we as parents educate ourselves
1: a little more and 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 question the way that we've been taught and the way that it, it everything you know that something has been taught, we can do better and we we can be more empathic and and effective.
0: So we have one more question for you, and it's kind of our our everyone gets asked this question? Question. Uh, so since this is for Harper Academic, our target audience is faculty and students, though anybody can listen to it. But we always ask our interviewees, "Who was your favorite teacher?" I have so many. You can pick more than one. It's fine. Helen Sedgwick picked more than one, so. You
1: know, I mean, I, I guess um, if I was to say in 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 high school, I had. Uh, My, I, I, I'm, I took a, the only journalism class I ever took was the first semester of my, for the first quarter, it was just a quarter, of my sophomore year of high school. Okay. Um, with this guy, Richard Roche, who, uh, stopped teaching shortly after that. Went to work in corporate life so he could actually, I guess, make a living or something. And, um, but that class was what ignited me and, um, made, I, I never looked back. I mean, I took that class, I was 14 years old when I took that class, and, I thought, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, and that was that. That's so. That's I, great. I think you know that was he. He changed my life. He he made everything I have
0: done is because of that one class. That's great, and for the fact that it was only a quarter, that's pretty impressive. I know, right? I, well, you know, it was really one assignment. Yeah. To be honest, I,
1: <laughs> we we he had us do what's called a sights and sounds piece, where you just go out and report like everything you see and hear. It's supposed to be it's supposed to teach you a lot about you know imagery and and the importance of detail as, as a journalist um and i went i'm from minnesota and i went to the annual um ski tent sale at our at the big you know ski store where i lived uh and i sat and watched this mother and daughter argue about a jacket <laughs> and i don't know what it was quite about that but something about sitting and watching that and writing a story about that just, I mean, it was like everything went in, like, was blurry and went into focus for me for the rest of my life.
0: That's really great. I know. That's a really, Here, really great story. Well, thank you so much for joining us. My great pleasure. Mine too. Thanks so much, Peggy. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.